Let's say a little boy comes to you. It might be your son or your grandson or your nephew uh, wearing a cardboard Burger King crown with a plastic sword in his belt. And he says to you, I'm the king. And he points at your face and he continues, you are my loyal subject and I'm bringing you into my kingdom to share it all with you. And with a smirk, you answer, yes, my liege, I'm at your service. And he takes your hand and he leads you into his room. And uh, there is his Lego castle. And he, his Lego guy, it, it lo actually looks like a king. You know, has a sword, has a helmet, has all the nice Lego things with it. And, uh, and that's his guy. And yours looks like a spaceman with some space helmet on or something like that. And, and uh, you notice that your Lego guy is outside the castle. And the little boy lowers the Lego drawbridge and you march your little spaceman across the bridge into his castle, which makes you feel good because of all the Lego cannons that are mounted on the Lego castle. So you feel good about that. And there's also um, a Lego dragon perched on top of the castle, which apparently is in the king's service, which makes you at ease as well. And the king shares inside of your castle some Lego, Lego food for you. And he gives you a fish, a banana, a turkey leg, and a ginormous carrot. You know, the proportions of those Lego things aren't quite right. But anyway, now... The little boy has warmed your heart, but let's be honest, as cool as Legos are, there are no, no real practical benefits of you being in a Lego kingdom. Uh, it doesn't give you really any blessings. In a few days, the kingdom will be destroyed and rebuilt into a monster truck or something like that. So, Now, it's a different story if Maha Wachiralankam, the king of Thailand, did the same thing. Now, putting many things aside, if the king of Thailand brought you into his kingdom, into his $30 billion net worth, you'd receive a whole lot more benefits than a Lego kingdom. The, the blessings of the king or of the kingdom correlate to the king who brings you into his kingdom. Jesus is king, the promised Davidic king. Matthew establishes that early and then shows you throughout his gospel what the king is like, his person, his works, his, his words, all of which tell you about his kingdom as well. By telling us what Jesus is like, Matthew tells us what his kingdom is like. And we'll see that through the rest of the book. Here's where I'm headed today. King Jesus sovereignly brings his disciples into his kingdom to bless them and to display his glorious grace and power in them. Let me begin by defining the kingdom again, which hopefully sets the stage to see how the king blesses those who brings into his kingdom. So then, into what kind of kingdom is Jesus bringing his disciples? Theologian uh, Louis Burkhoff defined the kingdom like this. The primary idea of the kingdom of God in Scripture is that of the rule of God established and acknowledged in the hearts of sinners by the powerful regenerating influence of the Holy Spirit, ensuring them of the inestimable blessings of salvation. What's Burkhoff saying? He's saying that the kingdom of heaven is God's reign and God's rule in the hearts of his chosen people. God establishes his reign and rule in sinners' hearts by regenerating them by the Holy Spirit and by bringing his reign and rule to his people's hearts and lives. 
God ensures them, His people, of the unfathomable blessings of His salvation. Burkhoff continued, the present realization of it, talking about the kingdom of heaven, is spiritual and invisible. Jesus took hold of this eschatological concept and made it prominent in His teachings. He clearly taught the present spiritual realization and the universal character of the kingdom. That means the kingdom is now in our hearts and lives, in the hearts and lives of God's people who are from the nations. And Burkhoff continued, moreover, he himself affected that realization in a measure formerly unknown and greatly increased the present blessings of the kingdom. At the same time, he held out the blessed hope of the future appearance of that kingdom in external glory with the perfect blessings of salvation. So Burkhoff was saying that the kingdom is now and is spiritual and invisible and for all the nations, and Jesus brought that spiritual and invisible kingdom in a way that was formerly unknown. <clears throat> Excuse me. On top of this, Jesus increased the blessing Blessings of the kingdom in this life for his people. And he even promised the future consummation of his kingdom in external and physical glory where the blessings of the kingdom will be perfect and absolute for the eternal enjoyment of his people. This happens at the return of the king. So far, Matthew explained the royal ancestry of the king. The birth and arrival of the king, the baptism or ordination of the king, the temptation and righteousness of the king, and the beginning of the preaching ministry of the king. Matthew goes from Jesus preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, to Jesus choosing his disciples, his 12 disciples. Now, why? Matthew first gets our minds on the coming of the kingdom, then progresses us to the king who brings people into his kingdom to bless them. And Jesus began with the 12 disciples to whom he would give the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus was securing his kingdom ministry for after he returned to the Father. I want to draw your attention to three main things in verses 18 through 22 in order to help you better understand the king and the blessings of the king's kingdom. Number one, King Jesus chooses his disciples. Number two, King Jesus changes his disciples. And number three, King Jesus charges his disciples. These points apply to those men that he chose and appointed to the office of disciple and in a similar way, not the exact same way, but in a similar way to us today, to us believers today. Number one, King Jesus chooses his disciples. In those days, disciples chose their rabbi, and Jesus broke that pattern. Verses 18 through 22 make it clear that Jesus chose the disciples that he wanted. In John 15, verses 16 and 19, Jesus told the 11 disciples in the upper room, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. I chose you out of the world. Jesus chose the disciples he wanted and appointed them to bear fruit. They didn't seek the kingdom. Jesus brought the kingdom to them and he worked it in them. That's sovereign grace. Verse 18 says, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, which was a beautiful scene, 
Look it up online. It's just beautiful there. He saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Verse 21 adds, and going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Jesus chose and called the disciples he wanted. Not Pharisees, not Sadducees, not high priests, fishermen to display his glorious grace and power in them. The term kaleo or called in verse 21 is frequent in the New Testament. It's used over 148 times. It can mean calling out to your friend. Hey, Hubert, you call out to your friend Hubert. Does anyone have a friend Hubert? Maybe there's a Hubert here today. We welcome you. Or it's like that really creepy guy from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, if you've seen it. Here we are, children. Come get your lollipops. It's coming. It's inviting. Kind of a creepy analogy, I know, but go with it. It's physically a call to come. It can even refer to God's universal call of the gospel, a call for the nations to come to Christ. But kaleo also refers to God's effectual call. God's effectual call is the call to come to Christ, which is always successful. It produces God's intended effect of salvation. And this is the sense of the word uh, call in Romans 8.30, where Paul says, and those whom he predestined, he also called, the same word. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God's universal call of the gospel is for everyone, but God's effectual call, the call that actually brings people to salvation, is for his elect, his chosen people. And we know this from Romans 8.30 because all those that God predestines are called and all those who are called are subsequently justified and glorified. When Jesus called Peter, Andrew, James, and John, of course, he was calling them to physically come after him as his uniquely chosen leadership team, but I think it goes even deeper than that. He was effectually calling them out of darkness into his glorious light, out of the world into his kingdom to receive his blessings. Matthew doesn't explicitly state that the men repented and believed, but it's implied in their immediate response to his call and expanded in Luke 5, which we'll get to in a little bit. This is how salvation works. Jesus calls people out of their sin, guilt, and misery, and by his grace, successfully brings them into his kingdom of righteousness. All those he effectually calls come because the king's voice is effective. Verse 20 says that Peter and Andrew immediately left their nets and followed him. Verse 22 says that James and John immediately left the boat and their father and, fathered him, uh, and followed him. And that seems abrupt. They're just going to walk away from the family business and follow some complete stranger. That seems a little weird on the surface. And here's where the other gospels help us out. Now keep in mind that the gospels are organized thematically, not chronologically. Not always chronologically. So it requires some careful thinking to get the chronology straight here. Peter, Andrew, James, and John had encountered Jesus before he called them to be his disciples. Listen to what happened in John 1, 35 through 42, before Jesus called them to the office of disciple. 
The next day, again, John was standing, John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now, some scholars estimate that that was about a year. Uh, a year had passed from this point in John 1 until Jesus chose and calls his disciples in Matthew 4. I don't know the exact time. Jesus wasn't a stranger to them. They were already thinking, this is the Messiah. The Messiah has come. And this helps us understand their immediate response in verses 18 through 22. Verse 19 says, and he said to them, said is actually present tense. Here, here he's doing it again. Matthew again uses the present tense to draw us in and, and to emphasize what Jesus says. Jesus says to Peter and Andrew, and this is the focal point, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. One time I was in seminary and I was standing outside the main classroom while class was going on and I was talking, no surprise there, and while the class was in session, the professor actually came back through to the doorway and he looked at us and said, shh, right in the middle of the class. I've been shushed my entire life. My mouth gets me in problems. And so what that's called is an interjection. And so that little shh means be quiet. It's a command. Keep your mouths shut. All right? Follow is an interjection which more literally means come. It's a command, come. And Jesus added the prepositional phrase, after me. Jesus commanded these four men to come, and they came. Now, what's most amazing about that? There's a temptation here to focus on Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and to think, wow, they left everything to follow Jesus. What sacrifice, what faith. Well, I think that's right to think. However, there's something bigger to see here, the power and effect of Jesus. Jesus came to them. Jesus chose them. Jesus called them. Jesus brought them into the kingdom. And Matthew is emphasizing the authoritative and effective command of Jesus. One source said, quote, Jesus did not simply invite these men but commanded them to be his disciples, end of quote. We are watching the king work for the eternal good of his people. He brings these men to himself by granting them grace through the inward work of the Holy Spirit and the gospel in their hearts. His command 
was made effective by the Holy Spirit at work inside of these men. Then secondarily, we see what grace, sovereign and saving grace does inside someone's heart and life. They respond by immediately and joyfully coming to Jesus to follow him. Sovereign grace motivates. So number one, King Jesus chooses his disciples. Number two, King Jesus changes his disciples. Here's my translation of verse 19. Come behind me, and I will make you fishermen of men. Jesus promised these four men a wonderful future. He would make them into something for his glory, to display something in them. He would transform them into apostles, into evangelists, into church planters. He would actually give them the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So the immediate response of these men in Matthew and Mark implies repentance from sin. Trust in Christ and pardon from sin and guilt. Now, this week, a wonderful Bible scholar that I deeply respect gave me some insight on this. He's done much work in the Gospels, and his name is Pastor Tim Nichols. And Tim texted me this week this helpful thought. Let me read it for you. Mark compresses repentance and forgiveness so closely together that in calling the fishermen, it is assumed their call included repentance and forgiveness. Luke's gospel spaces them far apart for Christological themes and so finds it necessary to explicitly include repentance and forgiveness, a multiple note throughout Luke 5. Matthew follows Mark's compression, so the calling is abbreviated. In other words, in regards to Jesus calling Peter, Andrew, James, and John, Luke gives more detail than do Matthew and Mark for reasons in his book. So I'll read Luke 5, 1 through 11, and I want you to listen for repentance, faith, and forgiveness. See if you can pick it up. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. Same place. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. He's saying that to the fishermen. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. I think that's a good problem for a fisherman. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. 
Jesus is so kind. He did something practical and amazing for these tough fishermen, which pictured their future ministry. He performed a miracle that blessed them practically. He drew tons and tons of fish into their nets by his sovereign power to display his glory, to display his authority. They were astonished and they were blessed. And Peter was so astonished and so blessed at the glory of Jesus that he fell down before Jesus and he confessed his sin and unworthiness. And Jesus, the lover of his soul, tenderly assured him, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Grace upon grace upon grace. That's grace granted through repentance and faith. And and they didn't know the depths of the meaning of fishermen of men. What would that turn into be? They didn't know that whole picture. But as we keep reading Matthew, as we keep reading the Gospels, as we keep reading Acts, we understand what that meant. Jesus changed fishermen into apostles into preachers of the gospel of the kingdom of God, into church planters, into the foundation upon which the household of God is built, Ephesians 2. He changed them and gave them the keys of the kingdom. Through their preaching and through their writing, others would come into the kingdom. Fishermen changed and compelled by the glory and grace of Jesus. Jesus' statement, come behind me and I will make you, I will make you, Fishermen of men was a glorious promise of transformation, a transformation that would showcase the glorious grace and power and blessing of God in the fishermen. Brothers and sisters, because of our propensity to self-centeredness, it's easy for us to read Scripture in ways that ultimately glorify human will or ability or worth. Todd White is one example of this. You might know his name. He actually said this, quote, the cross to me isn't the revelation of my sin. The cross is actually the revealing of my value. That's a bizarre interpretation of the cross. Satan wants people to hear Scripture as a story about their will, a story about their ability, a story about their desires, and a story about their personal worth. Uh, Rob's, Rob Bell's uh, short uh, film series, Numa, is another example of this. The films are very, very well done. One film is titled Dust, and in this film, Bell gives good background info on ancient rabbis and their disciples, and he recounts two biblical events, Jesus calling his disciples and Peter walking on water. Then Bell twists the scripture. Listen to what Bell said at one point in the film, and he's talking about Jesus' call of his disciples and Peter walking on water. Bell says this. What he's really saying is, I think you could do what I do. I mean, he's saying you can be like me. Now, I always assume that Peter doubts Jesus, but Jesus isn't sinking. Who does Peter doubt? He doubts himself. He loses faith in himself that he can actually be like his rabbi. I mean, Jesus wouldn't have called him if he didn't think he could be like him. Jesus even reminds his disciples of this at one point. He says to them, wait, 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 wait. You didn't choose me, I chose you. The rabbi doesn't choose you unless the rabbi thinks that you can do what he does, that you can be like him. I mean, all all my life, I've heard people talking about believing in God, but God believes in us 
in you, in me. I mean, faith in Jesus is important, but what about Jesus' faith in us? I mean, he must have faith in us because he leaves it all in the hands of these disciples. Jesus has faith that you can follow him and you can be like him. He believes it. Saints, that's not true. That's not true. That's twisting God's word into self-importance and moralism. Jesus didn't choose his disciples because he saw their potential. Yes, of course, they would become like him in many ways, but only because he chose and changed them by his sovereign and saving grace and spirit. Jesus was confident. Don't get me wrong. He was very, very confident, but not in the potential of his disciples, rather in his own power and his own grace at work in his disciples. The message of the gospel is that God takes unworthy and condemned protesters of grace and transforms them into vessels of grace. He chooses and changes the unworthy to show himself worthy in them. I will make you fishermen of men. He would transform them to the praise of his glorious grace. The king brought the kingdom to Peter and Andrew and James and John, and he worked the kingdom in them by his grace. Yes! He worked his reign and rule in their hearts. He chose them. He changed them. And he promised to charge them to display his glorious power and grace. Number three, King Jesus charges his disciples. And I don't mean he charges them like a bull charges a matador. So kids, that's not what I'm saying, okay? I don't mean that Jesus you know, takes credit card payment for his trainings, uh, like the TV real estate investment courses that maybe you have seen from time to time. What I mean by charge is that Jesus appointed the fishermen to an office and he gave them a unique mission. He chose and changed them in order to then deploy them in his kingdom work. I will make you fishermen of men states that Jesus would deploy them to fish for men, to bring people into the kingdom. And that's what we see happening in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. Jesus said plainly, did he not say this? I will build my church. But he gave the keys of the kingdom to his disciples. He builds it through their ministry. He brings people from the nations into his kingdom, but he chose change and charge his disciples to be the preacher shepherds through which he calls and brings. He would work supernatural grace through the preaching, their preaching of the gospel. In Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus tells his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus has supremacy. Jesus is the king of the kingdom. And yet the king charges these men, go therefore and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Listen carefully. Their charge as office bearing disciples of Jesus was to fish for men, and Jesus promised to build the church through their fishing. Now, at this point, preachers might apply this by saying, okay, church, you are chosen. 
You are changed and you are charged. So go out, church, and fish for men. But I'd, I'd like to just hold off on that and I'd like to ask a question. Is everyone called to leave everything to follow Jesus in this way? Is the application of this message to do what Peter, Andrew, James, and John did? Now, we need to think carefully here. The answer is yes and no. Okay, the answer is yes in this sense. Yes, regarding salvation, Jesus does choose and change us. In response, true disciples leave their sin and guilt and misery behind. They receive Christ as Savior and Lord through faith, and they follow Jesus with a life of obedience to God's law by the indwelling power of the Spirit. We can't follow Jesus in the exact same way that the disciples did. They were chosen disciples, walking with, physically with him, but we must follow Jesus in everything in the sense that we joyfully submit to his will in our workplace, in our school, in our family, in our finances, in our sexuality, in our thought life, in our everything. But the answer is also no. Jesus did something unique here in verses 18 through 22. He didn't choose you, he didn't choose me to be one of the 12, did he? That was different. He didn't promise to make you an apostle, not even a preacher of the gospel. He called you to be a disciple in a different way. So should you then hear this message that I have to abandon my family business or whatever to follow Jesus? And the answer is maybe, but probably not. Jesus probably wants you to follow him by being faithful where you are, to serve him well as a fisherman or a salesman or a teacher or a lawyer or a plumber. I think sometimes people feel guilty uh, that they are not in full-time gospel ministry, somehow comparing themselves to pastors or theologians or authors or whatever, and they're like, man, I'm not a missionary. I must not be worth anything then. As if the work that they do every day is not in great service to the king. They somehow feel that they aren't serving the king as much as they are, um, as if they are a baker in Lancaster instead of maybe a church planter in China. We gotta think about that. That's not right. Most people are not called to be pastors. Most people are not called to be church planters. Most people are called to business or law or education or civil service in service to King Jesus. Their work is a calling as well. We all must serve the king with the gifts and opportunities that the king gives us. And I think Calvin helps us keep things in perspective here, and I think he helps us apply this text rightly. It's a long quote, but listen carefully. They teach us that Peter and the other three were not only gathered by Christ to be his disciples, but were made apostles, or at least chosen with a view to apostleship. It is, therefore, not merely a general call to faith, but a specific call to a particular office that is here described. That's what's going on in this text. Verses 18 through 22 do not, does not describe Jesus calling everyone to faith and discipleship. It's similar, but it's not the same. Certainly, these four men were general disciples. They were uh, called by God's grace. They were changed, and they were, they were charged to follow Jesus just as a general disciple. But Jesus called them to a unique office of disciple, an office that he doesn't call you and me to. Calvin continues, the duties of instruction, I do admit, are not yet enjoined upon them, but still 
It is to prepare them for being instructors that Christ receives and admits them into his family. This ought to be carefully weighed. Listen closely now. For all are not commanded to leave their parents and their former occupation and literally to follow Christ. There are some whom the Lord is satisfied with having in his flock and his church. While he assigns to others their own station, those who have received from him a public office ought to know that something more is required from them than from private individuals. In the case of others, our Lord makes no change as to the ordinary way of life. Okay. There is in one sense in which you must leave everything in order to follow Jesus. Repent, leave your sin and guilt behind, Hail Jesus as master and serve him right where you are. Only a select few are called to leave their occupations and be ordained to preach the holy gospel. So, moms and dads, you serve the king faithfully when you change diapers. That's the king's service. That's worth something. Changing diapers is worthy service to the king. Do it faithfully, with gratitude in your heart, and with joy, and with love for your little bumpkins, to the glory of the king. Solder pipes, clean cars, spray fields, mop floors, finish drywall, teach classes, serve your aging parents, file papers in service to the king for the glory of the king because he chose you and he changed you and he charged you to serve him where he put you. Do your work well in service to the King Jesus and be ready to testify to the faithfulness of Jesus along the way. Let people know who you serve and how grateful you are to serve him and to be in his kingdom. Saints, King Jesus sovereignly brought you into his kingdom to bless you. Maybe by giving you a ton, tons and tons of fish. Maybe. But certainly to display his glorious power and grace in your life your work ethic, your respect for your boss, your honesty and your integrity, your kindness to coworkers and customers, your faithfulness in the small task, your positive attitude to be there to serve others, your encouragement of others. We need godly people. We need them to help here at church. We do. We, we need elders. We need deacons. Only a few, more than what we have, but a few. But you know, more than that, more than that, God is calling you to take what you learn here and to apply kingdom living to every single area of your life, your marriage, your family, your neighbors, your jobs, your classrooms, your politics, your hobbies, everything. Repent of your sins. Put your trust in Christ. Receive the glorious blessings of his kingdom. Just think of some of them. Forgiveness of sins, the righteousness of Christ justification, adoption, God's love, God's peace, the Holy Spirit's power in you to help you overcome sin. And let the blessings of his kingdom then compel you to thankful obedience to King Jesus in every single aspect of your life. Let there be no part of your life where Jesus is not hailed and adored as king, as king. Jesus is likely not calling you to leave everything behind. It's possible for a select few, 
but it's more likely that Jesus is simply calling you to follow and serve him wherever you are, wherever you are. You follow Jesus by walking by his spirit in complete allegiance to him. Follow Jesus by being like him at home. Follow Jesus by being like him at work. Follow Jesus by being like him at church. Follow Jesus by being like him in the community, wherever you go. Follow Jesus in that way. So let me end with this question. How many of you are ready to do that immediately?